We are going to continue studying the book of Revelation. We're studying that book all throughout the summer. We will finish the book this summer and probably into the first maybe week or two of the fall, depending on where we land. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 14. So open up your Bibles or log into your Bible and find Revelation chapter 14. It's the last book in the Bible, the last book of the New Testament. And as you're finding that, welcome to those of you who are watching us on Facebook or you're watching later on on a stored video or you're listening to our podcast. We're glad you're here. If you're watching online, don't forget to like, comment, share, pass the message along to different people that are following you on your social media. You can help us get this message out to a broader audience than what we're even reaching here on Sunday morning. So with that in mind, um, let's dig into Revelation. Um, if you asked me to summarize the Bible or if a friend of you asked you, you know, as a piece of literature, give me kind of the scope of the Bible, there's a couple simple ways that you could describe it. One of the things that throws us off who know a little bit more about it is we know the Bible has 66 individual sections or individual books or letters within it. And one of the things that can trip us up is if we just assume it's a collection of 66 unrelated books that are all just bound together. Um, that's not really the best way to approach the Bible. The Bible is one cohesive story. It tells one cohesive interrelated message and a couple different ways you could describe it it really tells us the bible tells us where we came from it tells us how we got to where we are right now and it tells us where we're going that's a way to summarize the bible but there's some tension there's tension and conflict in any good story in any good movie you got to have some conflict and the bible also reveals to us the source of all the conflict in the course of history it tells us really what's at the root of all the conflict in the world, and it is just woven throughout the entire Bible, and it's the conflict between God and Satan. God who is good, Satan who is evil. And the Bible picks up the story even before the creation of time, before the creation of the earth, and it goes way back and shows the origins of the initial falling out between God and Satan. And it traces that conflict and it shows how that has been ongoing and escalating in ferocity and intensity since creation up until today, right now in real time, it is still ongoing and it is building in some type of crescendo to some ultimate epic final showdown. And Revelation takes that whole thing in a microcosm and God shows the Apostle John a vision of the things he tells John this way. He says, write down the things that I'm about to show you, the things that were, the things that are, and the things that are to come. And so God shows John this vivid vision, and then John, through the unique skills that God gave him as a writer, writes it down for us, and that's Revelation. And so, so far in our study, we've looked at what John has said about what things were, We've looked at a little bit of what he was talking to in the present day to the churches that were actually uh, alive and active in the contemporary times that he was writing at the end of the first century. And over the last couple weeks, we've looked at John showing us how this ultimate conflict between God and Satan will escalate, 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 and then finally build up to this final ultimate showdown. And he's been introducing to us the different pieces and the characters, the key players of that final showdown. He showed us two beasts, a beast out of the sea, later on called the Antichrist, and he showed us the beast that came up out of the land, also known as the false prophet. And what we've, dis what we've discussed together is that those two beasts have always been operating. They've been operating in increasing inten intensity. Those beasts might be actual historical figures. They might be powers. They might be false religions. It could be any one of those things. It could be something even greater than that, but they are the sum of all evil. Together with the dragon that John, that John shows us, you know, Satan kind of is mocking God by forming his own version of a trinity. You have Satan, you have the Antichrist, and you have the false prophet. And I just, the way we identify that here is Antichrist is this system of being against God. It is all things anti-God. And Revelation shows us that there are two groups and only two groups of people, those loyal to God and those not loyal to God. That's it. There's no third group. Every single man, woman, boy, and girl is either aligned with Christ or they are aligned with anti-Christ. And the enemy's goal has been to sway everybody to, be, uh, to show their allegiance to him, number one, and away from God. And, number two, those who will not 
betray their allegiance to God to take them out. That's been his MO since before time up until today, and it will increase, increase, increase. And in these chapters, we see it building, 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 building. And John is showing us now there's going to come a point where the Antichrist is at his maximum power. The false prophet is, is working counterfeit miracles and, 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 and using everything that he has to bring economic sanctions and physical threats and death and violence to those who will not take the mark of the beast, who are, who are aligned with Christ. It's a time of great difficulty on the earth for Christians. And then he shows us this other scene of Jesus standing up, getting ready to act. And that's where we pick up the scene right here, Revelation uh, chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. The big, I'll give you two big ideas today, one from chapter 14, one from chapter 15. Here's the one from 14, big idea. Before time expires, every human chooses one of only two possible allegiances, loyalty to Christ or loyalty to Antichrist. The fate of the former, those loyal to Christ, is victory, ultimately. The fate of the latter is eternal punishment. I want to just show you this is very absolute, friends. This is very, very, very clear. There's no ambiguity here. This is very black and white. It's very cut and dried. This is not a new idea John's introducing. It's been consistent throughout the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, beginning with Jesus himself. Those who are not for Christ are against him. There is no neutral third party. And I'll actually show you something I saw in this text in a minute that I've never seen before that I think spells it out even more clearly. And I will tell you, that's a hard message for me to swallow sometimes because I want to lump people into three categories. Those people who are very obviously anti-God. Those people are, who are very pro, pro not just pro-God, because there's people that are pro-God that aren't saved. But I mean, those people who have surrendered their life and have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then there's people who are anti-Christ. And then I want to lump this third category together. These are the people that just seem to be really morally good. They're just not saved. Yet, and I like that third category, the Bible doesn't show us that category. And, and, and it's one of those things I wish I could soften that. I wish in some ways my own heart and the way that I want to view God in some of these places. I, God, how can you be all loving and then lump everybody into these two absolute categories? But it's very, 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 very clear. He is the king. He is the Lord of all. And if anything else is supreme, you can't know the supreme one. And so what John shows us, what God shows us, is that now and ramping up to the end, that as we get closer to the end of time, it's going to become even more obvious that these earth, the earth's population is divided into two categories. Those who are loyal to Christ. They are loyal to Jesus. They are saved and they will not betray him. They are loyal to him in life and they will be loyal to him to the death. And then there's the other category of everyone else. And that is loyalty to anti-Christ. There is something else I value more than Christ. And those are those two categories. We see it here in chapter 14. Let me read you verses 6 through 13. We see three angels here. There's angels all through Revelation. Simple definition of an angel is a messenger from God. Okay? These are, these are uh, angelic beings that are messengers from God. They carry out his handiwork all through the Bible. They, carry out, they work on his communications team. And they, and they uh, share messages. So we're going to see three angels, three successive messages right here. Um, and I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And here's what that angel is saying. Here's the message. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. So the first angel comes and the angel is carrying the eternal good news. We could summarize good news with another word, right? Gospel. So isn't this interesting? Just a quick refresher. What's going on while the angel is flying, talking to the people of the earth? Who's really in control of the earth at that point? Who's, being given, who's given permission to be in control? Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. And they're purging the earth of Christians. Don't you think that's something that God would have very little to no tolerance for? And yet, before judgment comes, because we just read, judgment is coming, he sends another angel. And who's the angel talking to? Every tongue, tribe, race of the people that are dwelling on the earth at that point who have pledged their allegiance to the beast and against God. 
And what is he sending to them? He's sending them one more chance. You see, God's goal is always mercy, not punishment. But sometimes we force his hand. And we ignore mercy and we reject grace. It's like all those different times when your conscience told you you shouldn't be doing this and you ignored it and you ignored it and you ignored it. Maybe God sent you a messenger who saw something in your life and just said, man, woman, this ought not be. And you ignored that and you ignored it, ignored it. At some point, God loves us enough to send us discipline, send us judgment so that it can get our attention so that we can make things right before the time comes where it's too late for a do-over. And friends, we also see in these chapters, there's coming a time where it will be too late for do-overs. God will no longer knock. He will judge. And even though he could skip right to the chase, we see the first angel he sends here says, worship God. Not the beast. The beast didn't create everything. Worship the creator because you see, all sin begins with us rejecting God as the creator. There is no creator. I get to decide. I get to choose. Go back to Romans 1. You can read more about that where sin springs from us rejecting God as the creator. And here is this angel saying, fear God. And it's not a long gospel message. Fear God because it's time for him to sit as the judge. Judge means to make a decision for or against. To cast judgment. And here God is presented not as this gentle little lamb. They're saying there is no more time. The judge is about to judge. Fear him worship him because right now he's speaking to people who don't fear god they fear the beasts and they're not going to do anything they want to save themselves from being annihilated by the beast so they reject god because they don't fear him as much as they fear the beast and the angel is saying there's still a chance fear god worship him because he's getting ready to judge and he will judge everybody and the way to get it's straight theism just you just the way to get back at it is recognize that god made everything. He's the creator, not this imposter. Second angel comes by, verse 8. Another angel follows him through the sky shouting, Babylon has fallen. The great city has fallen because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. So this angel is saying Babylon is fallen. Babylon is in fact a geographic there's a geographic identity for Babylon. It was uh, at the capital of the Persian Empire back in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. There's a present-day representation of Babylon. Okay, there's an actual geographic region that we can attach that to. So there's a couple different ideas about what Babylon represents here. Is it actually going to be the kind of like the capital of the Antichrist's world government? Like if the Antichrist becomes an actual historic figure, a flesh-and-blood figure used by the enemy to be the Antichrist, does this mean that he's going to be basing all of his worldwide, you know, uh, politics and military and government out of the actual city of Babylon, rebuild it. Um, that's a possibility. It's a possibility. Babylon also is a symbol. So there's a, so there's a literal part and there's a symbolic. Babylon represents something that's been in operation for almost all of modern history. And Babylon was the epicenter. If you go back and study who Nebuchadnezzar was and what Babylon really meant, Nebuchadnezzar got his whole thing. He was a very strong dictator who built a statue of himself and forced people to bow down to that statue. And he used it as a means of control. And in fact, you have this interesting story in the Old Testament of uh, these four guys, Daniel, and you remember the other three? You watch your veggie tales, you should know this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they ended up in Babylon because Israel sinned. And God permitted the Babylon. There's very much of a parallel right here. If you... Revelation is very, very, very Jewish, so I'm going to go on a This is going to seem like a trail. This is not my notes. It's not really a trail. This will make this make more sense to you when we talk about Babylon. People who were Jewish who read this would have understood what he was talking about Babylon being fallen. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were permitted to take over Israel. God permitted it because Israel sinned, and so part of it, they wouldn't repent, and so God allowed judgment to come in, and God's people, because of their sin, one of two things happened. They were either, you know, they were either beaten down and were so weak that they just kind of, a few of them just kind of hung out there in Israel and just lived as, you know, just kind of nomads in their own land. But the rest of them were hauled off in captivity to Babylon and forced into service in the Babylonian Empire. And Nebuchadnezzar, he had a bit of an ego on him, didn't he? Not a humble guy. Built a statue of himself, funded by himself, okay? 
He has, I mean, you ever walk into someone's house and they have nothing but portraits of themselves hanging up? Isn't that awkward? You're like, really? You, you, you like yourself, don't you? Yeah, that's nice. You know, I have no good pictures of my life. In fact, some of you have seen some of my childhood pictures. They're rough. I have them all. No one would trade with me. All of my school pictures, I have in uncut sheets because people are like, eh, I'll just give you one of mine. You know, you can keep that one. Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue of himself and forces everybody in the kingdom to bow down to him, except for <laughs> these four Hebrew slaves, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And basically, the whole story moves to a showdown, and they will not, these followers of God have a choice. Now, how familiar is this to Revelation? They have a choice, bow down to the image or get thrown into the fire, okay? So, there's lots of debate. I'm just going to throw this out here as I, I don't like to do a lot of speculation, but I want to be very careful. I'm going to give you an interpretation. I don't think it's the only one. It may not even be the best one, but, but, but one nonetheless. So there's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's four boys that won't bow down, right? What does Nebuchadnezzar say? If you don't bow down, what am I going to do to you? I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And they actually get thrown in the furnace, right? How many of them get thrown in the furnace? Three. Where was Daniel? In the lion's den. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Where was he? We don't know, do we? We don't know. There's a lot of theory behind that, that Daniel was sent on some type of errand for the king um, so that he was out of the picture so they could spring this trap on the other three. And those who try and piece this into Revelation say, Daniel represents the raptured church. Some people say this, okay? He might represent the raptured church. He was just as loyal as the other three. The other three were thrown into the fire, and they were not burned. They went through a tribulation, a test, and they were not burned. But what happened? Who actually ended up in the fire? Okay, well, okay, Jesus was there with them, but then who actually, at the end, okay, they spared them, they pulled them out, didn't even smell like smoke, and who got thrown in the fire? All the bad guys, right? Interesting correlation here. That's what was going on in Babylon. Babylon, in the eyes of the people who would have read this, represented, yeah, that was the empire that forced everybody to make a choice between being thrown into a furnace if they were loyal to God and living a nice, peaceful life if they bowed down to the statue. And what really happened in the end was the people who were loyal to God avoided the furnace and the people who bowed to the statue ended up in the furnace. And that attitude... That spirit of Babylon is still alive today. This idea of don't be, if you bow down to Jesus and you serve him, life will be made more difficult for you than if you simply reject him and live like the world. And so when John sees this and he says Babylon has fallen, what he's saying is this antichrist power over earth is now done and is going to be defeated. It's over. Because it has seduced people from the beginning of time to drinking the intoxicating wine of what it promises. And so John sees this. So whether he is speaking about an actual Babylonian reconstructed empire that would be based in present-day Persia, that Iraq, Iran region, possibly, or whether he's talking about something much bigger symbolically. In either case, what we need to see is this. There is a time coming where God will say, all right, enemy, your time is up. I've given you time to do your bidding. I've held my hand. I've let you run amok. I've let you do your thing. And now time is up. Your kingdom is time. It's time for your kingdom to fall. Then a third angel. Third angel follows them shouting, anyone who worships the beast and his statue. And then this next word is important. It's a little word, two words, two letters. Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or who accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into the cup of God's wrath and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever and they will have no relief day or night for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. Let me go back to verse Nine real quick. Here's the thing that I saw yesterday morning when I was reading over this that I haven't seen before. So this is kind of fresh in my mind, just a thought to inject there. 
The third angel followed them, and and what this angel is basically saying, here are the groups of people that are going to receive this specific type of judgment. Here are the people that that, uh, judgment is going to rain down on. Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or who accepts the mark. And what he's doing is he's basically, in my own mind, I've always kind of lumped humanity in the three categories. The saved, the anti-God, and then everybody else who might not be like overtly anti-God, but they're not saved. They're the, you know, the, the morally good people. Now, I know that's not an actual category of people. It's one that I make up sometimes to just deal with some of my own difficulties and understanding a loving God that we work with. This is a flawed view that I have, but I see in this verse my second group represented, and it gives me an explanation for it. It says of the people that are anti-Christ, it kind of says there's this one group that is actively worshiping the beast and his statue, and then there's, in the same category, there are people who might not be actively worshiping the beast and the statue, but they accept his mark. They accept him. And you see, I have family members and I have friends who I'm like, these people are not devil worshipers. They're not into the occult. They're not out running around doing all kinds of horrible, sinful, sadistic sin. But you know what they are doing if they're not for Christ? They're accepting what he's doing. They're accepting it. They're just accepting life for what it is. They're accepting it without acknowledging Jesus as Savior. They're accepting life. They're accepting right and wrong. They're accepting morality. They're accepting everything that goes along with life as though they are up to, it's up to them to choose how they want to live. They've not surrendered to Christ. They're, they're, they're not under His Lordship. They've accepted the mark of living a life without a Christ. Without a Lord without a savior. And it's really hard to say this for me, but it is what the Bible says. That the people who are actively worshiping the beast and his mar- and, and, and his image or and or those who just accept his mark into their life. Just accept it. And we're not really extreme and all this other stuff, but you know, we're not on into the God thing either. We're just good people. Both of those people will drink of the wine of God's anger that has been unmixed, undiluted in the Bible. A lot of times when they're talking about wine, they diluted it with water. Because if you just gave them the the full strength wine, a lot of people would be completely hammered out of their mind all the time. They would be stupefied and drunk and stumbling around. That's the image that Proverbs gives us about unmixed wine. And so when we see here, God's not diluting his wrath at this point. He's, this is not the same type of consequence as just the normal mechanisms and teaching correction mechanisms of life's realities. This is something far more severe. This is the unmixed rat, wine of God's wrath. And what we see is there really aren't three groups of people, friends. Where you sit this morning, you're marked by Christ or you're marked by Antichrist. And if you're still here and you can think and you can breathe, you can make a choice if you've not been marked by Christ. You can make a choice today to renounce living for yourself, with, renounce this lifestyle of living without a Christ, and you can come to Christ. But friends, there's a time coming that we'll read about here in a few verses where that option will no longer be available. Will no longer be available. Reading further, uh, probably some of the most uncomfortable language in the New Testament for me. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it's one of the most detestable doctrines, but nonetheless a true one. Um, says uh, they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. So there's a couple words in here that don't seem godlike to many of us. And there's a lot of writers and thinkers who claim to be followers of Christ, who insist that some of the things we read here um, are absolutely, they use the phrase sub-Christian. They're beneath God. God would never do something like this. And honestly, if there's a, a very short list of things I would change in the Bible, this would be one I would love to be able to change. Because I'd, I don't like the thought of what this is. Any Christian who gets a sense of joy or glee or satisfaction out of talking about people tormenting and suffering hell, you don't know the God that I know. God gets no glee from this. God gets no joy from this. God doesn't look forward to this. This was never God's intention for people. 
God's intention for you and I was to never die, to never know disease, to never have to work. That's his intention for us. The enemy convinced us that there's a better option and that we know what it is. We've all bought into that. And God's plan to redeem us requires there to be a sense of justice here. A comeuppance, if you will, for those, for those of us who insist on continuing to live our own life our own way. Not surrendering our life to the one who loves us the most. And I know to some people this just sounds so harsh. It boils down, you know, some people want to reduce God to saying, choose me or else. Love me and serve me or else fire and brimstone for you. And that's an unfortunate reduction. It's actually an unfair and inaccurate reduction of who God really is. It's taking God from, fi- from infinite to finite. It's reducing him to human terms where a lot of these things are mutually exclusive. And in the time that I have this morning, I probably can't unpack any of those questions, but I do want to look at these verses and let's at least rule in what they're saying and maybe what they're not saying. It says that those people that God is going to judge are the people who rejected Jesus and they had opportunity to do otherwise. It says that those who he's going to judge are those who, who worship the beast or who have accepted his mark into their life. And that uh, they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur. Now some people say, ah, he's describing hell. Maybe, maybe not. For those who say it's not like God to do this, I would say he's done this before. He, the, the people who read this would think, oh, that's a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. In the Old Testament, God rained down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, book of Genesis, Abraham, intercession. He reigned, uh, there is a, that's, those two cities were known for deep types of sexual sin, for deep types of homosexual sin, for heterosexual sin, for rape, for forcible sodomy, for all kinds of really horrible types of sin of the worst kind in the Old Testament language. And Abraham pleaded with God on behalf of the city, not the righteous. He knew God would spare the righteous. He was pleading for the unrighteous. When's the last time you went to God and pled for him to spare judgment on the unrighteous so they could change? That's really the model of how Abraham dealt with the sexual sin of the day. He stood between God as a righteous person and the sinners and said, God, I appeal to you. If you find even 10 righteous, will you spare the city for their sake? He didn't ask him, will you spare the righteous for the righteous sake? He knew God would spare the righteous. So will you spare the city for their sake? There's a whole other message in that, and I don't have time to preach that one this morning, but maybe sometime. But what happened was they got a message, repent. They didn't repent. The righteous were removed before the judgment came, and then it rained down fire, brimstone, burning sulfur, and tore that city down to ashes and destroyed everybody in it. Again, it was an actual historical event, but it was also a symbol of what we're reading about here in Revelation. It's very difficult to read passages about torment of people, suffering. Other interesting thing about this passage, it says it occurs in the presence of the Lamb and the angels. They can observe this. Now, it's not that uh, believing saints or people that have gone to heaven, it's not like in heaven everybody's going to be sitting around on theater seats watching people that we know and love be tortured. That's not what this describes. Old Testament apocalyptic literature always included that uh, the people who were suffering to intensify their suffering would get a vision or a view of what it could have been like while they were suffering to like intensify the suffering. That's just kind of Old Testament apocalyptic imagery. Um, We see some of that represented in Jesus' story, uh, the parable about Lazarus and the rich man where Lazarus is actually in hell and he's suffering and he can talk to Jesus back and forth. So some of that's imagery, not meant to tell exactly how it's supposed to be, but it's imagery, it's symbolism. What do we know? We do know for sure that this passage tells us this torment doesn't just happen with the snap of a finger and then it's done. What does it say? They'll have no rest. It'll happen day and night. It's not like people will just go into a place of soul sleep. 
whatever this punishment is, whether this is literally describing hell or whether it's a symbol to describe its severity, its ability to, its avoidability, whether it is a symbol to describe, one thing we do see is that it is eternal. Those who follow Jesus will have rest. Those who reject Jesus will have no rest. And as much as I don't like talking about it, the doctrine of hell is biblically solid. It's biblically based. It is not something that's enjoyable to talk about. It's not meant to be used as a terror tactic. I don't want to obsess over it. But it's very real. And I don't want anybody to go there, and neither does Jesus. The only way people are going to end up there is if they well choose to be there. So I would say to you today, if there's a knot in your stomach as we talk about this, I don't want to overplay it, I don't want to underplay it, but if there's a knot in your stomach, my friend, are you ready when the judge comes to judge your life? Are you ready for the judge to look into your heart and say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or do you want to still hold on to your pride to say, "Mm, not yet, not now. That's too much of a cost for me to pay. I want you to know Jesus gets no joy from this. There's not rejoicing. There's not high-fiving. There's not gloating. It's a very severe, very difficult, very hard to read, very hard to swallow theme. Friends, if, you're, if there are people in your life you know that don't know Christ and your heart is getting a little bit impatient or you're discouraged, let this motivate you to not give up. Let this motivate you to not sit on your laurels and get weary in doing what's right. It's a reminder for us that no matter what discomfort it puts us through, ultimately in our heart, we want them to choose life. We want them to know God as we know God. And most people reject God. Most people who reject God haven't had an accurate presentation of who he is. They've had an inaccurate presentation for, of him or, or not him at all because to know God is to love him. He's nearly irresistible. My issues with God are not usually the things that I walk through in myself. It's because somebody represented him inaccurately to me, and I took it as truth. He is loving. He is wonderful. He is not a dictator. He's a father, and he wants to bring new life, and he wants to redeem you. That's why he sent his son into the world. So uh, that's about as much as I want to talk about that passage today, not because I'm afraid to. I just get no joy in it, but it is part of what's in our text, and we need to look at what it does say and what it doesn't say. Verse 12, this means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. That's a reiteration of something we read earlier on. I've preached about this over the last few weeks. Let's trudge ahead. Verse 13, and then I heard a voice from heaven saying this, write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they are blessed indeed for they will rest from their hard work. Their good deeds follow them. Two things I want to show you here, and then we'll quickly, we'll quickly wrap this all up. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the next chapter real quick because it's the shortest chapter in Revelation. Just draw a conclusion from it. Two things I see here at the end. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. What does that mean? Blessed are the people who have a relationship with Jesus. You're blessed when you die. It's backwards the way we think, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I don't ever want to die. And, you know, people who don't have a relationship with Jesus, they fear death. It seems to suggest that we who know Jesus don't have to fear death. We'll be blessed when we die, number one, because we'll finally be able to rest. This is the difference. If you die without Christ, you enter into an eternity of unrest. You die in Christ, you enter into an eternity of rest. What do we know? It will be just like God always intended it to be. No more work, no more toil, no stress, no struggle. You get a rehab body, you get to live in a rehabbed earth and a brand new heaven that's been created for you the way God always wanted it to be. Then there's this other cool thought, and I wish I could unpack this today. I can't. I'll just leave it with you. Your good deeds follow you after death. Well, Pastor, when am I ever going to get the reward for all the good things that I've done? Oh, it, if you don't get it here, it's going to follow you. Isn't that amazing? God sees every good thing you ever did. And even if you don't think it's been rewarded, he noticed and it will follow you. Isn't that an amazing promise? All the good things you do on this earth for the Lord, every time you put people first and you give generously and you love with compassion and you help the downtrodden and you work to fight against injustice, even if you suffer and you work and you suffer and you rest, those things will follow you into eternity. Wow. I don't know if any of you got that, but that is really good stuff. That's a really good promise. It's such an amazing promise. Chapter 15, real quick. I don't have time, don't have time, don't have time. Chapter 15, here we go. Um, I'll read to you verses 1 through 4. We have a song of Moses 
and of the Lamb. Then I saw in heaven, then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the last seven plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. I saw before me what seems to be a glass. Oh, did I skip verses 14 through 20? Let me hit those real quick. Let's go back to 14 through 20. I just skipped six verses on sickles and other kind of stuff here. The harvest of the earth. You don't think I can finish this. You watch. You know I can talk fast. I've been trying to talk slow, but I'm going to ramp it up for eight minutes. Can you listen fast? Okay. You watch. Okay, here we go. Harvest of the earth. Then I saw a white cloud and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. Who's that describing? Whose favorite name for himself was the Son of Man? Jesus. I saw a white cloud seated on the cloud was Jesus. He had a gold crown on his head. What does crowns represent? Diadems. What do they represent? Authority. Permission to rule. Okay. On his head, and he has a sharp sickle in his hand. What did that represent to the Jews? Harvest. Absolutely. It's the tool that they use to harvest things. Okay. This is not a guillotine. This is a sickle. Okay. Then another angel came from the temple, that's important, you just have to study that on your own, and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, swing the sickle for the time of harvest has come, the crop on earth is right. Parenthetically, some people say, well, this couldn't be Jesus because it looks like the angel is telling Jesus what to do. And Jesus would never take orders from an angel. My response to that is the angel's just making an announcement. I don't think, it's, I don't think any angel, the last angel that tried to tell God what to do, yeah. <laughs> didn't go so well. Um, it says, swing the sickle for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. Interesting phrase, interesting Greek tip here. Every time you see ripe in this chapter, it actually means the word for overripe. Okay? So the one sitting on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth and the whole earth was harvested. So we have one harvested. We'll call this the earth harvest. Now we have another angel coming from the temple in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. And then another angel. Angels everywhere. Just lots of angels. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with a sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. So that angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes in the great winepress of God's wrath. What do you think those grapes represent? What do the grapes represent? People. Let's be more specific. Yes, people. They're going to be thrown into the wine press of God's wrath. So which of the two groups of the people are we talking about? The pro-Christ or the anti-Christ followers? The anti-Christ followers. They're going to be like grapes. We have this image that will be harvested and they will be thrown into the wine press of God's wrath. And then this description the grapes were trampled in the wine press outside the city okay they don't get to go into the city outside the city and blood uh, blood flowed from the wine press in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle yeah so basically my summary of of what happens here in in chapter 14 we see three different expressions of judgment we see the unmixed wine of god's wrath being poured out we see the earth harvest from Jesus. He's harvesting the whole earth. And we see the, the grape harvest. We see three. These could be three distinct events. I don't think there's a problem with seeing them as three different descriptions of the same event. How would you summarize it? As time winds down, as Jesus wraps everything up, one of the last things on his to-do list is he's going to harvest the whole earth. Parallel to this is Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares. In that parable, Jesus harvests the whole earth like we see in the earth harvest, and he separates the wheat from the tares, the righteous from the unrighteous. We see here the grapes represent the unrighteous, and we see this really graphic idea of the, those are the people who are going to suffer God's wrath, and there's this really gory image of those grapes being pressed and the blood flowing as high as a horse's bridle. So again, just three different images of the way that the judgment will ultimately play out. Righteous people don't have to worry about God's wrath. Unrighteous, the rejectors of Christ, those who will not bow their knee to him, they will suffer the wrath of God. Three different pictures of the same uh, wrapping up of time. Chapter 15, next big idea. Well, I've got three minutes, I can do this. The next big idea is that God's promised judgment can be described in three words, holy, righteous, and final. Holy, righteous, and final. Let me read it to you. Verses 15 
or chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. What's the number seven symbolized in the Bible? All through it, beginning in Genesis. Complete. Creation didn't take six days or eight days. On the seventh day, God said it's finished. It's complete. So anytime you see seven in Revelation, and I would tell you, if you made a list of all the sevens you see in Revelation, that list would be very long. What's it telling us about these plagues and about these angels? This is the completion of God's wrath against the earth. It's complete. This is not another stage. This is the final, the complete. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire, and on it stood people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps. Here's the harps again that God had given them, and they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. Lots of things going on here. What I can give you really quick. First of all, let's not miss out on how amazing this is. He sees what looks like a sea mixed with fire and people standing on it. Haven't you ever wanted to stand on water? I thought only Jesus could do that. Isn't it cool that what John sees in heaven is this group of the redeemed, they're not sinking, they're standing on the sea. First of all, I would sing and learn to play the harp if you would let me stand on a sea. They're standing on it. They're no longer suffering in the storm. They are standing on the sea. And who are these people? These are the people who have been victorious over the beast in his image and not taken his mark. Two possibilities. One of these possibilities is that these are the people who uh, made it through the tribulation. These are the people who, who followed Jesus and didn't take the mark and they were martyred during the tribulation. They're standing there because they overcame the beast and his mark. Or you could say it's the group of all the redeemed people because all of us who know Jesus have stood against the beast. We've chosen not to take the mark. Yes, we've suffered. Yes, we've struggled. But one day we're going to stand on that glassy. We're going to stand on it, not in it, on it. And we're going to sing a song, and it says the lyrics of the song are going to be familiar to people who were with Moses. This song was sung in the Old Testament. It was sung at a time when the Israelites were trying to get free from Egypt, and they kept going to Pharaoh. Moses kept going to Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go. He was coming to him and giving him warnings, giving him warnings, avoid judgment, let my people go. And he ignored them, and plagues came, and then he changed his mind, and then he changed his mind again. Let my people go, plagues. Let my people go, plagues. He hardened his heart. He had many opportunities to soften his heart, but he hardened his heart. And the plagues kept coming, and finally the people got ready to go, and the Red Sea split. And they walk through the sea, and they get out on the other side, and fear and those people are following them, and it swallows them up. And the people sing this song, the song of Moses. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. Who will not fear you and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you in the righteousness of the field. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? Almost every phrase of the song comes from the Old Testament, by the way. Psalms, Amos, Deuteronomy, Malachi. The content of the song is the celebration of God's righteous and redemptive activity. Isn't it interesting that the song of deliverance sung by Israel when they crossed the sea, having been rescued by Pharaoh, whose armies were swallowed up, is the same song we'll sing, having been rescued from the beast who's about to be swallowed up in judgment. Isn't it interesting how that all connects and ties together? But here's what I want you to see. The song does not celebrate the carnage in the sea. The song does not celebrate God's wrath being poured out on enemies. The song celebrates the righteousness of God. Okay, so important thing to see there. A lot more to say. Uh, I'll just leave it at this. It reveals to us that God's judgment is holy because what we see here is God's judgment is against sin. He is unalterably opposed to sin. He is holy. When he comes to judge, it's not a judgment. It is a judgment against sin. He is holy. He can have no part with it. He cannot let sin go unpunished or he's not holy. Okay? His final judgment is holy. We see that here. His judgment is righteous. Why do you say that? God always offers opportunity for redemption before executing judgment. If he did not tell us a test was coming and didn't give us the questions on the test and he didn't tell us how to prepare for ourselves and we all just wandered through life completely in ignorance and then we show up one day and this is waiting for us, you could say God's cruel. But that's not God. All of creation screams to us that he exists. Every tree, every rock. We're explaining this to my six-year-old the other week. Every tree, every rock, you have to look at it and say, how did you get here? And that rock cries out, 
God made me and put me here. All of creation screams out that there is a God. And all of us have an opportunity to find Him and to turn our hearts to God through Jesus. We have that chance. God is righteous and He always gives opportunity for redemption before He executes judgment. It was clear with Pharaoh, with mankind today, and in the final winding down of history, and His judgment is final. Let me read that to you. Verse 5. Then I looked and I saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown wide open. So in heaven... We see a tabernacle and we see seven angels again, okay, holding the seven plagues come out of the temple. They come out from God's presence. They were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chest. In other words, they're dressed like priests. They're just there carrying out God's bidding for the people. One of the four living beings hands one of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with God's wrath. The only other time we saw a gold bowl in Revelation was chapter 5, and that was where they collected all the prayers. So I don't know if, if John is trying to draw some correlation between the prayers of the saint and the execution of God's judgment. Finally, they say, help us, help us, help us. And he says, okay, judgment's coming. I'm not sure, but it's the only other time we see a gold bowl. Um, the wrath of God will last forever and ever. Here's the kicker. Verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. God's judgment is final. Here's what he's telling us. There's all kinds of Old Testament imagery about the clouds and the smoke and everything else. I'll let you read that on your own time, but listen. No one could go into the temple and tell God, stop your judgment. At this point, God says, judgment is leaving the temple and it's gonna be poured out and he fills it with smoke and John says, no one could enter in there until the judgment was done. There is coming a time, friends, when God's judgment will be final. No one will be able to stay his hand any longer. And you and I, if we know Jesus, we don't have to be terror-filled about that day. We can look forward to it. When you're prepared to be judged, when you're prepared, when you live your life with nothing in between you and God, you can look forward to that day. But if you're not prepared, anybody bringing it up is going to cause you to have a deep level of emotional unrest. I don't want to help resolve that for you this morning. I don't want to scare you to Jesus because if I scare you to Jesus, worship team, you can come back. If I scare you to Jesus, I'm going to have to keep scaring you to stay close to Jesus. I don't want to do that. God doesn't want you to come to him out of terror. At the same time, the Bible does say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there is some level of helpful, holy fear that lives inside of all of us. It's, it's kind of like, you know, like I wasn't terror. I wasn't terrified of my father, but there was a healthy fear that I had that like I wanted to please him and I knew that if I didn't do right, there were going to be consequences and that healthy fear kept me making better decisions. I want you to know Jesus does not look forward to any of us facing his judgment unfavorably. His will is that all would come to him. And this morning, I want to make another clear presentation of the gospel. Friend, are you ready to face judgment? Is there unfinished, unresolved business between you and God that Jesus stands ready and waiting to cover over in his blood this morning? Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning? If you need to make a decision to follow Jesus this morning, he's ready for you. Heaven is ready for you. It's a place of rest where all your good deeds follow you. It's a place of health and wholeness. It is perfect. It's just the way he always meant it to be. There is also a transformation waiting for you right now. A new life. You become a brand new creature right here, right now, supernaturally when Jesus comes and lives inside of you. How does that happen, Pastor? Simple as ABC. Admit, believe, choose. You have to admit that you're a sinner. That you've been marked by a life that lives anti-God. A life that lives pro-you and anti-God. You have to admit that to him be. You have to believe in Jesus. You have to believe. There's only one way to heaven. There are not multiple ways to heaven. There's one way. One way. Only one way. And that is through Jesus Christ. It's not through your resume. It's not through your performance. It's not through your good deeds. It's not through your offerings. It's not through all of your charitable work. It is through Jesus Christ because all of our resume still falls short of Jesus's and it's not good enough. But Jesus' resume is good enough and it was already presented and accepted for you. So if you believe in Jesus that he was God's son who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross as a substitute in your place so that you can be accepted by God for Jesus' sake and on Jesus' resume, not for your sake and your resume, and you are willing to accept that and understand that he rose from the dead, he's alive today, 
If you believe that and you will choose, see, choose Jesus to be your Lord, that means you have to say, I'm going to be surrendered to Christ. I'm not going to surrender to the mark of this anti-Christ system. I will surrender to the mark of Jesus. I will let him be my leader. He decides right and wrong. I can trust him to lead me. I will bow my knee to him. He will be my king. I will be his servant. A, B, C. Admit, believe, choose. If you're ready for that today, he can't wait to welcome you home and all of heaven's ready, ready to have a party. Let me lead you in a prayer of repentance this morning. If you know Jesus this morning, you know him, you've made that decision, but there is unfinished business in your heart. Don't carry it through. Why would you do that? You're carrying a burden you weren't built to carry. Deal with it today so that when you stand before judgment day, there are no skeletons in your closet. There's no unfinished business. Let it be washed clean this morning. If that's what you want, pray with me today. Dear Jesus, I admit that I am broken and flawed. I am sinful. I have lived life my own way. I've been my own king. I admit that to you today. I believe in you, Jesus, that you lived a sinless life, that you are God's son. You died on the cross in my place. You rose from the dead, and you being raised from the dead is the receipt that your payment to God for my penalty was accepted. That's the receipt. So I accept forgiveness from you today. I welcome you into my life, and now I choose. I consciously choose you to be my Lord, my King, my ultimate leader. I will get off of the throne of my life, and I will put you in its place. Thank you for saving me. Lord, I pray for every man and woman in this room who has unfinished business with you today, that's walking through life carrying sin, that's been unconfessed and unrepented. Lord, will you deal with our hearts this morning? Lord, will you remind us not to give up on our friends and neighbors, our lost loved ones? May you restore our enthusiasm and urgency because we really don't know how much longer we have until these events take place. So you give us a holy urgency to reach them. In your mighty name I pray.